Today's episode is one that I'm very excited to share, though I admittedly wish I were sharing it under better circumstances. The episode features an in-depth discussion that Colin and I had with Ronan Levy, the founder and executive chairman of Field Trip Health. It was an incredibly engaging conversation, and Ronan is an eloquent and at times poetic guest. He has lofty ambitions and seems to genuinely want to change the world. He believes that psychedelics have the potential and power to unleash the best in humanity, touching on things like empathy, creativity, awareness, love, and even connection to the planet. Something I found really refreshing about our conversation was the way he framed our present as a unique opportunity in history to elevate the state of humanity in a really wonderful way. In this episode, we talk about his background as an early pioneer in the medical cannabis industry through to his business's eventual acquisition by Aurora Cannabis, which also informs a discussion comparing the psychedelic and cannabis industries. We talk about his current venture, Field Trip Health, and their over $10 million in financing to date, touching on psychedelic cap tables in the industry more broadly. We get some great insight on his clinical operations, their advisory board and team, and their underlying multidisciplinary approach. We explore constitutional amendments, ballot initiatives, and FDA approval as well as morality versus legality and the self-perpetuating notion of psychedelics. Ronan speculates about the future, but also weaves the threads of his past together in a way that foreshadows exciting things to come. And Colin, I think, perhaps it goes without saying, but it's worth adding that the current global pandemic comes up in a number of different ways in this episode. Whether that's in terms of field trip health's need to rapidly think about remote work shortly after they opened their Toronto location, or in terms of a more macro effect in its potential to further exacerbate our current global mental health epidemic. It's also worth noting that this is ultimately a three-way conversation among people who are self-isolating, and so the quality implicitly won't be the same as some of our previous episodes that we recorded live together with our guests in studio. We appreciate you bearing with us as we all transition and adjust to this new world. Well, Ronan, before we dive into the meat of the discussion, I think the first thing we wanted to highlight was just how grateful we are for you taking the time to do this podcast, this pandemic podcast, actually. Um, the first remote one we're doing. So also for listeners, um, we appreciate you bearing with us during this process. There may be a bit of crackling, some noises, but we hope that the value of the discussion outweighs the discomfort that may come from audio quality. With that said, we're really excited to have this discussion. It's one of the discussions we were really holding up as a milestone when we started this podcast. So to start to have it come to fruition this early is really just another marker of how fast this industry is accelerating and how exciting it is to be a part of um, just bringing it to the forefront of public consciousness. I think the first thing we want to dive into with you, Ronan, is your background. And specifically, we, we've dived deep from like 1997 through to today, and we're cognizant that your background is probably one of the most colorful and diverse that I've seen among uh, any of the guests we've been profiling. And so there's a lot there. I would love for you to go through it in detail um, and we'll sort of stop you and pick at the parts that we really, really wanna focus on. But 
what we're really hoping to get out of this is how you got to where you are today and how some of those previous experiences shaped both what you're doing at Field Trip, but also the desire to pursue a business in the psychedelics industry more broadly. Sure, I'd be happy to share my history and my experience. But before I do that, just wanted to say that it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Happy to be joining you guys to talk about uh, all things psychedelic, as well as my background, which is probably less interesting than psychedelics, but certainly happy to share. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, happy to be here. So uh, my background, going back to 1997, uh, we're going way back now, which just kind of reminds me of how old I am. But that's a whole separate conversation. Um, let's see. I got started, I guess we'll go back to university if we're picking 1997 as the relevant date, which was I went to the University of Toronto uh, to study commerce and finance. Uh, I did a four-year e-commerce degree. Um, it was an okay experience. I can't say I learned particularly that much uh, during my four years at university. I think the most important thing I took away from four years of undergrad was that all courses and all just different academic disciplines are just different angles and different models of trying to understand the universe around us and keeping that perspective whenever you hear someone talking about economics or sociology or, or even medicine or biology. Uh, they're just different ways to approximate the understanding of the complexities of this world and, and keeping that kind of lens on things as I've gone through the rest of my life has been extremely helpful because uh, it helps me balance and understand some of the nuances and biases of the opinions and, and ideas that you may hear because uh, almost everybody, particularly coming from an academic or a professional context, is looking through a specific individual or set of models and all of those models are incomplete. Uh, and, and so, you know, I guess over my time since then, I've become much more um, open-minded to understanding the value of a true classical education, uh, getting all sorts of perspectives and blending them uh, together. Uh, I think it leads to the best coherent, most thoughtful outcomes and ideas. But um, that was probably the biggest takeaway from my four years of undergrad, besides the fact that I did uh, very well on an academic perspective and, and managed to fulfill a childhood dream of mine, which was getting into law school. Um, that was quite a, an achievement that I was proud of, I think mostly because I had always suffered from an imposter complex, uh, which is to say I never thought I was that smart. And truthfully, I don't think I'm that smart, but I have managed to uh, succeed. And in, in especially in undergrad, I was able to you know, get great grades, uh, get into the University of Toronto Law School, uh, which I guess is one of the most esteemed law schools, certainly in Canada and, and definitely has a global reputation. Um, and I think when I got to law school, uh, my personality and who I was kind of became a lot more distinct to me because from the first day of law school, I got there and I was like, these are not my people. Um, you know, I got along great with everyone. Don't get me wrong. And I, I did adequately well in law school and, and got a job at a big corporate law firm like you're supposed to do coming out of law school, at least U of T. But I, I knew from the very beginning that my persona and my personality uh, was much more nonconformist and contrarian than, than most people in law school. Um, and so I always was kind of a, um, a unique person there. I always kind of had my own way, did my own things, and uh, people accepted me for it, which was lovely. But I, I knew the course that I was on 
uh, at least in law school, was probably not where he's going to end up. And, and notwithstanding, uh, and this is my advice to any aspiring law students, that as much as people will tell you that having a legal education is just a, a wonderful background to have and sets you up well to do whatever you want in the future, uh, there is a vortex um, around law firms and, and you know the very very healthy salaries they pay and all that kind of stuff that's hard to get yourself out of even if practicing law isn't what you want to do uh, it's easy to get caught up in that vortex and that certainly happened to me um, and they ended up at, at a firm called Blake Castles and Graydon which is one of the seven sister corporate law firms in Canada uh, certainly one of the most prestigious law firms um, uh, doing corporate and securities transactions uh, definitely was not for me. It became more and more evident that uh, these were also not my people. Um, uh, and, and I think that really kind of was was most evident um, early on in my career. I think I was an articling student at Blake's. We were doing a fundraiser where we had a competition against first-year associates trying to raise money for the United Way. And um, we're doing an articling student's shoe shine where we'd go around the entire law firm uh, to shine people's shoes uh, to raise money. And I put together a little advertisement that we, we sent to the entire firm, which I didn't think was particularly creative. Um, it just said, um, first year associates are dull, don't let your shoes be uh, articling students' shoe shine. And we sent that out to the entire firm. And the response I got was just overwhelming, like just mind-blowingly overwhelming of people thinking it was hilarious. And, and there was one lawyer, uh, I think his name was Graham McLeod, wrote back um, with a, a one, one sentence response saying, are you too creative to be a lawyer? And I stopped and I thought about it and I decided, yeah, yeah, I am too I creative so. to be a lawyer. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I was pretty aware that Blake and being a lawyer was not where I wanted to be, but it, it took a long time to sort of uh, escape from, from that path. Um, I spent a couple of years at Blake's doing corporate securities work, did not really enjoy it. The training I did get, um, mostly driven by fear from uh, one of my overseeing lawyers who was extremely strict, uh, extremely precise, uh, was nerve wracking, probably accelerated my hair loss, but um, certainly was, was a good training uh, in terms of being very focused on, on precise communications uh, and precise drafting. And I think that's one of the best lessons I've probably ever taken. It also reminded me that absolutely nothing I learned in law school bore any relevance to what I did in the practice of law. So again, for any aspiring law students out there, don't expect law school to actually put you in a good position for understanding what the practice of law is because it doesn't and it won't. It's, it's a very different experience. Um, Notwithstanding, uh, eventually I left Blake's. I got a job uh, working as an in-house lawyer at uh, a pharmaceutical company called BioVail. I spent a year there. It was um, it was really nice to escape the the grind of of Bay Street life for sure. And the work was certainly more business oriented, which I found much more satisfying. But it was still um, not really in, in sort of like the core of where I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And, and so I managed to parlay that job from working at a pharmaceutical company to working in-house at actually Much Music, uh, which is for any American listeners out there, the equivalent of MTV in Canada. And actually uh, MTV Canada was another part of the company I worked for. So I got to 
live out a childhood dream, you know, being at least basking in the reflected glow of rock stardom, uh, working with a lot of musicians and, and at labels and all that kind of stuff, helping create content uh, from a legal perspective. Uh, but one of the things that was nice was I got to a start to blend a lot more actively some business acumen into what I was doing uh, as well. It kind of really um, put me in a position to understand digital technology and, and, you know, startup world and all that kind of stuff. And that was around 2007, 2008, right around the financial crisis. Uh, the job there was um, good. I, I loved the people I worked with. Um, I loved uh, this space I was in, you know, the music industry hadn't quite gone through the total evolution that, of where it is right now, but it was definitely uh, in that turbulent time for the music industry. Um, notwithstanding, I got a job offer um, to work as general counsel at uh, an online dating company. And uh, probably, even though that was a short-lived experience, is probably one of the most influential and, and seminal experiences in my life because the CEO of that company um, was uh, went to law school. He, he was a he wasn't a qualified lawyer, but he was a trained lawyer. But he understood the psychology uh, of law and regulations and media uh, to such a, a an inordinate degree that he got away with so many things that most people would say you could never get away with. And I won't go into the details of, of some of the shit we got up to, but a lot of it, you know, most people would say you can't do that, but not only could you do that, we did it and we got away with it uh, and incredibly well. And it really showed me a couple of things. One is that it's pretty easy to manip manipulate the media. <laughs> That's one thing. Uh, two, that, you know, there's a, an incredible, opportunity as a lawyer and, and as a business person, but as a lawyer uh, to create real value by understanding not just the black and white letters of laws or regulations, but really the, the nuances and, and soft skills of understanding, you know, enforcement, who's going to actually care about the laws and regulations that you're talking about and will anyone do anything about it? And even if they do, what are the consequences of it? And so it showed me that there's a lot more complexity and, and nuance to, you know, really operating a business and finding opportunities, um, you know, where other people may not see them or might be afraid to look. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think my, my favorite author is, a, is an author named Tom Robbins, and he has a, this great quote, which I probably won't repeat verbatim, but he said, sooner or later, each of us has to separate what is moral from what is merely legal. That makes us metaphysical outlaws. America is full of metaphysical outlaws. And it really struck home to me, which is, you know, there are a whole bunch of regulations and laws out there that most people accept blindly as being moral, but that's not necessarily the case. And understanding the morality of the world around you and what you do and, and looking how the laws may or may not um, be consistent with that is, I think, an exercise that most people need to do. And I think that was like, just being aware of that separation and whether it's law or regulation or whether it's social norm uh, doesn't really matter. You have to decide for yourself what, what is right and wrong. And, and I think, you know, personally, and I think everyone should live by that and adhere to those principles, um, whether, you know, it's socially acceptable or not. But it was one of the big takeaways from that experience of mine. Anyway, there was um. There were a number of issues with that company um, occurring at the time I joined. 
uh, you know, uh, going back to my comments about separating what is moral from what is legal, uh, mm -hmm. there were some things that were of questionable legality, which also were inconsistent with my morality. Uh, and so after about six months, I decided that I wasn't willing to, a, to take the reputational risk or B, uh, you know, live contrary to what my beliefs were. Uh, so I left the company um, and uh, started doing some freelance legal work. But at that time, I decided that I wasn't really interested in being a lawyer, that I wanted to break out and, and become an entrepreneur, uh, which is you know, something I had dabbled with all along. Uh, the first company I started with uh, two friends was back in, I think, 2005 or so, a company called Click Greener, uh, which was an online affiliate mall uh, that donated a, donated a portion of proceeds to um, uh, green-related charities or environmental-related charities. So it was a way to make every online purchase just a, a little bit more environmentally friendly. Didn't make a whole lot of money through that. We did end up selling the business, but not for a, a whole lot of money. But it was kind of my first real taste of entrepreneurial activity. And, and that kind of sowed the spirit in me. And, and by the time I left uh, the company where I was just general counsel, you know, that spirit had grown into full-blown ambition. I was around 30 years old. I had an apartment. I had no wife. I had no kids. I had no responsibilities. If I was ever going to take a leap and do something in the entrepreneurial vein, that was the time to do it because I had a little bit of money. Uh, I had some experience. I had a decent reputation. Uh, so it was time to go out and do that. And so I started doing some freelance legal work to keep the bills uh, paid um, and started doing a whole bunch of tech startup-y kind of stuff. Learned an important lesson during that as well, which is if you're partnering with someone whose time is divided between taking equity or taking a paying client, they will always take a paying client. So expect your work always to go to the bottom of the pile uh, in those circumstances. But uh, nonetheless, uh, in the end, an interesting opportunity emerged to actually open a, a cash for gold business, which again, uh, was not something that I necessarily put high on my list of industries that I wanted to participate in, but uh, it happened to occur at a time when my mom was in a position where she may have to find a new job. She was uh, in her 60s finding employment for someone with her skill set at her age was probably not something that was going to be easy. So when this opportunity came across my lap, even though it wasn't high on my list, uh, all of the other areas that I was exploring kind of had dried up. So I thought to myself, well, you know, I could start this business, uh, get some experience. If it gives my mom a job and employs a few people, then it's a win. And whether I make any money off of that or not, um, you know, it will be a success if it gives my mom a job for as long as she wants to have a job. Uh, so myself and, and two partners, we started Toronto Gold, uh, which now has three locations across the GTA uh, and still operates, even though it's really not my primary focus right now. Um, through that experience, uh, you know, I learned a ton about running a business day to day. I also got access to join a network called EO, uh, which is um, kind of a feeder program for YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Um, and through that experience, I think that's really altered the, the course and the evolution of my life. And particular shout out to uh, a gentleman by the name of Jason Gaynard, who I've met through EO, who has been instrumental in, in influencing my life and making connections and, and just being an awesome friend throughout that. Um, 
but yeah, we, we launched Toronto Gold, had a great experience. You know, it's, it's a profitable little business. It's never turned out a huge amount of money, but it keeps operating, keeps turning out small profits. Did a whole bunch of freelance legal work on the side. Um, eventually, Toronto Gold got to a place where it was operating pretty sustainably and didn't require my day-to-day involvement. So I started looking to get into something new. Um, you know, what we did with Toronto Gold, I should point this out before I get to the next stage of my life, uh, was that cash for gold industries are one of those industries that have a terrible reputation because they tend to operate uh, within boundaries of uh, ethical dubiousness. You know, they typically are designed to rip people off uh, or take advantage of people who are uh, in a uh, financially weak position uh, and, and exploit that. Uh, so we took a very different approach to that and really wanted to bring a sort of modern ethical approach to cash for gold. So we decided that we're going to post all of our prices online. Uh, we're going to pay more than everybody else as far as we could be aware of their pricing. And we weren't going to haggle with people. So it wasn't about, you know, coming in and seeing how little we could pay for a person's old gold jewelry. It was more about saying, here's our price. You know, we'll, we'll test it. We'll show you exactly what you have. Um, we'll weigh it. You know, we'll do the math based on what's posted online. And then you can make a decision. And, and we're not going to pressure you into selling your gold. Uh, you can make that decision for yourself informed of all facts. And, and so it was really designed to bring in a sort of ethical approach to an area and an industry that uh, had a terrible reputation. Um, and and I, I flagged that because as I was looking for the next big opportunity, uh, which turned out to be in the cannabis industry, that uh, that viewpoint, that that opportunity of of bringing, you know, darkness into light, bringing uh, industries that have a, a shady reputation and bringing honesty and authenticity to it uh, was was really kind of what informed my conversation around cannabis. And, and that really came about, um, I guess, in 2013, I met some guys, I did some legal work for them. They were trying to do something startup-y. I was pretty ingrained in the startup space, so I had a good sense of what was working, what was not. They had a whole bunch of ideas. Uh, I apparently panned them pretty badly. I don't remember being so rude, but uh, as I was leaving the meeting in which they were running through some of their ideas, the last one they kind of commented on was about how the regulations in Canada around cannabis had changed. uh, And there was an opportunity to potentially create an online marketplace for medical cannabis. And, And I remember stopping taking my coat off at that point and saying like, guys, that is the only idea worth pursuing. Um, You know, you don't get the opportunity where a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry goes from black market to legal literally overnight. And to miss out on that uh, would be crazy. And their reaction was, yeah, but it's cannabis. It seems so shady and dodgy. And I'm like, guys, like that's that's where the opportunity is. That's exactly why it's a fantastic opportunity. You know, besides the fact that you have uh, product market fit already, there's no question about the demand for cannabis. Uh, the only question is, are you willing to, you know, bring authenticity, authenticity and honesty and and you know discipline to an industry that probably doesn't have much? Because if you are, uh, then there's a massive opportunity there. And so I cajoled them for a while, basically threatened that if they didn't do this business, I would take the idea and run with it because it was too good to pass up. Eventually, you know, we came together about a month or so later and decided to go into business together. And that's really what gave birth to Canvas RX and then subsequently Canadian Cannabis Clinics, which has grown to be the 
the largest network of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada uh, and Canvas RX we sold to Aurora Cannabis back in 2016 when Aurora was still a, an ambitious but fledgling um, licensed producer. Uh, and so we sold the business to them, joined Aurora, helped it grow from you know being a $60 million market cap, cap company in 2016 to peak out at, at close to 16 billion. Uh, sometime in 2018, um, and then left that, and, and that kind of takes us up to the present and, and the dawn of field trip. So I've been talking a lot. I'm going to stop there, or if you want me to continue on how field trip morphed out of that experience, I'm, I'm happy to keep talking. So I like that was wonderful. I, I asked that question to a lot of people and very rarely do people actually go through the details and draw a coherent thread through all of them that honestly, like I couldn't have scripted better foreshadowing. So <laughs> that's, that, that's fantastic. I think you brought us to exactly where you want, uh, where we want to be. I think one thing that I imagine listeners are curious about, I know you've talked about this on other podcasts, but if you could just add a little bit of color of, you get acquired by a company that at its peak was valued around 16 billion. Presumably you're like financially stable. It's in an industry that presumably was interesting to you that a lot of people would say is only at the tip of the iceberg. Now, without really commenting on whether or not cannabis is truly in its infancy, I'd be curious to understand your motivations for why you left Aurora or perhaps put differently what you weren't experiencing or what you weren't able to do at Aurora that you were hoping to do that prompted you? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was a couple of factors. Um, one was the nature of our deal when we sold Canvas RX and Canadian cannabis clinics to Aurora was based on the achievement of certain milestones. Uh, and by the time we were getting ready to leave, most of those milestones had been achieved. Um, so financially, the incentive to stick around wasn't as persuasive as, as it could have been uh, at that point. Um, in terms of like the experience, we had uh, a great run um, when we joined. You know, I think Canvas RX and Canadian Cannabis Clinics doubled the size of Aurora, uh, and, and we stepped into sort of senior management positions. But as the company grew and evolved, management really kind of became uh, positioned uh, in Edmonton, which is where Terry's based. We still have a great relationship with Terry. Um, but we could see that the evolution of the company was trending where our kind of voices and roles um, weren't going to be as central to the decision-making processes of the company. Um, and it was going from a stage where it was startup and, and hyper growth, not that it's not still a, sort of a hyper growth stage. Uh, it will be in a, again, but um, you know, it went from being uh, really scrappy, startup-y, pivot, make decisions on a dime and execute to being more bureaucratic, um, more decision-making processes and protocols, more voices, uh, getting things done became increasingly more challenging. Uh, getting Terry's attention uh, to make decisions around things became uh, harder. Um, you know, I was... I was pretty satisfied because two of the deals that I brought to the table, we, we, we closed on um, really quickly, which was awesome because most of the deals that ended up getting closed were ones that either Terry or, or Neil, who is the chief global brand officer, uh, brought to the table were the ones that got done. And I was pretty, pretty pleased that the, one, the couples that I brought to the table 
um, uh, got done. But I think philosophically, um, there is also a divergence, which is Terry really wanted to focus on making Aurora a, a medical cannabis company. Uh, and I thought, um, you know, the deals we should be doing should be outside of cannabis because everything in cannabis was inherently overvalued and you should take overvalued stock. Uh, and use it to buy fairly valued business with real revenues, real, you know, real EBITDA and build the brand outside of cannabis because we knew that the restrictions on cannabis marketing were going to be quite restrictive. So taking any opportunity to get the report name out elsewhere uh, was something that made a lot of sense to me. And so I had negotiated and brought a deal to the table that I thought made a ton of sense. I still think it would have made a ton of sense. Um, but at the time, you know, there's another deal in the works, which ultimately became the, the med relief deal. And the deal that I had worked on was was kind of just shoved to the side, uh, which I get, you know, there's a strategic decision involved, but uh, I'll admit it was pretty demotivating to invest that much time and effort into a deal that had the buy-in of a, a lot of people. Um, but, you know, on, on sort of the turn of a dime got, got uh, let go of. Uh, and so, you know, a combination of all of those factors led to the decision that it was, it was time to move on and start something new. Hmm. Interesting. So after that happened with Aurora and you, you felt that you wanted to focus elsewhere, I'm curious, where did you start to gain an interest in psychedelics? I know that you have a background in, in venture investing after your time with Aurora or in your exit. But I'm curious where your interest in psychedelics as a category and as a, a sector really began in that timeline. Yeah, um, I, I, I can tell you exactly. So one of the meetings, it didn't happen with me directly. It happened with my business partner, Joseph, uh, was uh, with a woman named Judy Bloomstock, who was looking to raise money for uh, a company called Diamond Therapeutics. And excuse me, Diamond Therapeutics was um really looking to raise money around a drug development plan for different formulations of psilocybin and this was you know the first we had ever been made aware of uh of psychedelics and i, I remember being in the hallway and, and joseph told me about the meeting he had just left uh, about psychedelics and psilocybin and i'm like like the mushrooms and he's like yeah and i'm like there's something we can do in that space. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, it gave me the same electric feeling that I had when I first learned about the opportunity in cannabis. Uh, and I'm like, we got to explore this. This is, this is going to be the next big thing. And, and uh, so we had a follow-up meeting with Judy. She kind of took us through the state of the industry with things like what was happening with compass, with compass pathways. She turned us on to how to change your mind by, by Michael Pollan, which we all picked up and read. Um, yeah, fantastic book. Um, you know, LinkedIn, which uh, can be a double-edged sword, turned out to be beneficial. So uh, right after that meeting, it was clear that we probably weren't going to do something with Judy. Uh, we're not typically drug development people. The timelines around conventional drug development are much too long for our kind of immediate execution-focused brains to think about. So uh, you know, that wasn't the path we were probably going to head down, but we decided that we wanted to start understanding the space and, and exploring it. So I used LinkedIn, uh, found a connection to George Goldsmith at uh, Compass Pathways, managed to connect a call there. Um, I knew some folks um, uh, like Mark Wayne, who was at Canopy Health, uh, who had set up a, a joint venture with uh, the Beckley Foundation to create uh, Canopy Beckley Therapeutics. 
obviously the Beckley Foundation's interest in psychedelics is well established. So reached out to Mark and, and spoke to him about, you know, what he thought about psychedelics. And we started connecting the dots uh, and thinking about it. And it was something that was super exciting. And uh, actually it really started almost at the same time we started some of our venture investing through Grassroot Ventures, uh, but we just didn't know what to do. It was something that we, I was personally electrified by. I think my business partners had kind of the same view as cannabis. They weren't quite sold on the potential, but um, when you know started looking into it and started understanding the therapeutic applications, especially for me, because I've done a lot of work on myself from a, from a therapy perspective or coaching perspective, understanding that psychedelics could potentially, you know, uh, as it's been described, a single psychedelic or psilocybin assisted psychotherapy session can be like 10 years of therapy in a single session. It was something that resonated with me in terms of having huge impact, not only on treating uh, people with mental health conditions like anxiety and depression, but also for people who are quote unquote healthy normals who could just benefit from um, you know, greater sense of awareness, greater sense of spirituality, processing past traumas, all that kind of stuff. I really saw it as an opportunity where, you know, you could have a massive impact. I, I saw cannabis as being a massive opportunity. Uh, and I think psychedelics are a massive opportunity too. But unlike cannabis, uh, where the impact has been very positive in my mind, especially seeing the hundred or so thousand patients that went through our clinics, I know we had a profoundly positive impact on the quality of life of those patients. Um, but I think the impact we can have through psychedelics on, on a global scale is much, much larger uh, than, than cannabis can ever have. And, and so that's what really got me excited by it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's a notion Colin and I talk about a lot. Um, we'll touch on this a little bit later in the pod, but the, the similarities and differences between the cannabis and psychedelics industry are definitely a confusing notion for a lot of people, but that one distinction that you highlighted, the notion that the potential for impact is perhaps an order or two of magnitude greater with psychedelics is one that I think sometimes gets lost, um, especially among cannabis industry folks who simply see psychedelics as the next big thing. Um, but we'll we'll get to that. I think this is I think this is a great opportunity for us to transition into field trip health and i'd love for you to tell folks what field trip health is and how it came to be the one nuance i would like you to add to this story is that um and full transparency i get really deep into people's backgrounds there was a period where on your linkedin there was field trip ventures um, there was a period where i was considering applying to field trip ventures to work there as a vc analyst so i'm just trying to disentangle like was field trip health, like was field trip ventures an investment vehicle that ultimately had to transition to an operating company to create what was wanted in the market? Was it simply a question of rebranding? I'm trying to pry out that nuance as you, you explain how field trip health came to be. Yeah. Um, so in, in full transparency, you know, we, we decided we were going to do something in psychedelics, but we had no clue what to do. You know, there was different kind of low-hanging fruit opportunities to some degree. Um, you know, uh, the conversation with uh, George, the conversation with Mark Wayne, and then subsequently Cosmo from Beckley. Uh, Michael Pollan uh, at the time, remarkably, just responded to a cold email that we sent to him. Um, you know, the feedback was 
the value creation is not going to be in the drugs like it is in cannabis. It's not going to be the cultivation side of thing. It's going to be in the service delivery and the operation of clinics. Um, and so like, okay, cool. That That's awesome because that's exactly what our experience is, building clinics in areas of stigmatized medicine and, and bringing, you know, going back to that theme I talked about, bringing darkness to light, um, you know, bringing pre- professionalism and credibility to an area that most, uh, most in the medical community would probably scoff at. So it, it seemed uh, perfectly tailored for what we wanted to do. And we're like, all right, let's build clinics. And they're like, wait, uh, these molecules are all still scheduled and Compass Pathways is probably five years from approval and, and MAPS is is probably three years for, from approval. So what, uh, what are we gonna do? Um, but I knew, you know, for everything that we did want to achieve as, um, undefined as it was at the time, I wanted to start to capture the public's imagination uh, that there's a business to be built here. I wanted to start to capture investor imagination that things are happening. You know, perception very much is reality a lot of the time. And so through my work with Canadian Cannabis Clinics and then one of our investee companies, uh, Trade Biosciences, I had developed a a good network uh, of reporters who are interested in you know, the space, broadly speaking, whether you define it as cannabis or stigmatized medicine or psychedelics, you know, just interested in, in novel businesses, novel startups. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like, we're going to build a business, but we don't know exactly what it is. We think we want to model it similar to the cannabis industry, which is build some core assets for ourselves uh, and then be very active uh, potentially through the capital markets and a public vehicle uh, being acquisitive and making strategic investments. And, and we talk about that latter piece, it starts to sound a little bit like a, a, a VC fund. Um, uh, but it wasn't exclusively ever intended to be a VC, but it was uh, persuasive enough and interesting enough that we kind of pitched it trying to be out there first because we knew, you know, other people were exploring psychedelics. We, we had heard rumors that Canopy was going to do something in psychedelics uh, and we wanted to beat them to the punch and, and get out there first. And so we launched this field trip ventures because, you know, we really had an undefined sense of what we were going to do, but wanted to get our name out there as, as being first. And then we, we launched with that. Um, throughout that time, our, our kind of model crystallized around our core focuses right now, which is, clinic development using ketamine as the psychedelic uh, cultivation and research work on psilocybin producing mushrooms, much in the same vein as, as what has happened in cannabis, uh, you know, prior to the large scale cultivation industry that emerged over the last few years. And then, you know, some focus on conventional drug development. Um, you know, when it became clear to us that really, you know, until we're a public vehicle uh, at that same time as, you know, we were exploring this and crystallizing our business model. The the bottom fell out of the cannabis industry, and all of a sudden, trying to use that model um, with you know great valuations and all that kind of stuff seemed uh, progressively more and more like a long shot. As as investors soured on the cannabis industry and the speculative nature of it, um, we moved. To, we wanted to make it clear that we weren't a venture fund. Uh, that that model was not necessarily essential to who we were. Um, and so we pivoted from being field trip ventures uh, as our business models became clear uh, into field trip psychedelics, uh, really focused on, on our own operations. So 
Certainly, we do hope and plan to make strategic investments as, as necessary uh, in, in the future, but uh, for the time being, we're just focused on our own operations as, as field trips psychedelics, Inc. I, I really appreciate that additional context. It makes a lot of sense now in hindsight. Um, admittedly, when your only source of information is internet rumors and LinkedIn, a lot of that nuance is lost. So th that's that's really helpful. Um, I guess this probably goes without saying for some of our listeners, but could you help explain why the first um, sort of the first product in the clinics is ketamine based and perhaps how you see that evolving over time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. So as we were doing the analysis of like, what the hell do we do in a psychedelics industry where everything is still illegal, um, you know, or scheduled, um, we kind of happened on two areas of opportunity um, that we thought actually had a lot of potential. The first one was learning that ketamine uh, is being used um, uh, to some degree, as purely as an antidepressant, but uh, to a lesser degree, uh, as a psychedelic, you know, it, it is um, something that creates a dissociative state. Um, seems to have the same uh, neurological and psychological effects. Uh, maybe not quite as pronounced, but um, certainly opens people up from that perspective to the effects of psychotherapy, and in that way. Uh, operates much like a psychedelic. Uh, you know, you can debate um, whether it is a true psychedelic or not. From our perspective, uh, it is a psychedelic because the definition of psychedelic to us is anything that can clear or help manifest the mind. And, and so that can be the classic psychedelics like uh, LSD and psilocybin or DMT. That can be meditation. Uh, that can be breath work. That can be any number of things that open people up uh, you know, slow down the default mode network or kind of shut down or shut up the ego for a little while such that the effects of therapy can become more effective than conventional CBT or talk therapy. So, um, so we kind of looked and realized that ketamine is being used as a psychedelic. And if we want to build psychedelic clinics, then we could start offering psychedelic therapy right now with ketamine being the agent because it is a legal and approved drug. Um, it is a controlled narcotic, but it can be prescribed by, by doctors. Uh, and in the right care, it can lead to really fantastic outcomes. And, and more and more, uh, there's research showing the impressive nature of ketamine as, as a therapeutic agent. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's quite safe. It's extremely well tolerated in healthy adults. Uh, the antidepressant effects are, are now quite well established. Um, people have generally positive experiences on it. Given at the right time, it's actually been shown to be able to prevent PTSD. Uh, it enhances and increases neuroplasticity, increases connections amongst neurons in the brain. Like there's a many super cool, super amazing attributes of, of ketamine. Um, it just has a little bit of a, a negative brand. You know, I think people still perceive it as a, as a rave drug. Um, you know, or drop in into K-holes. And so like part of our effort is to like reframe ketamine that this is like an incredibly potent, incredibly safe therapeutic agent, much like people view psilocybin and LSD. You know, it's, it's pretty well established that you can't overdose on psilocybin or, or LSD. Um, you know, the doses of ketamine that we're giving to patients have very, very little risk. 
Um, and I, you know, I think people can tolerate quite large doses of ketamine as well. So there's a lot of analogies you can draw between the psychedelics. It doesn't act on the same receptors as the classic psychedelics, but it, you know, in almost every other respect, it is a psychedelic. Um, and so we saw that as an area of opportunity of like, okay, let's build psychedelic clinics using ketamine. And then as uh, psilocybin gets approval, as MDMA gets approval, or as psilocybin, you know, gets constitutionally uh, permitted in Canada, uh, much like medical cannabis came about back in 2001, uh, or as the ballot initiatives as, you know, despite uh, setbacks due to COVID, um, move forward in states like Oregon and California and potentially Colorado, um, you're going to see legal access to these, these other substances uh, probably much sooner than most people expect. So we can use ketamine to start helping people build a brand, build a business, create awareness, create patient relationships, create referral relationships, uh, and own the geography uh, such that when MDMA or psilocybin or LSD or DMT or whatever other drug uh, may get approved or legalized, we'll be right there and we'll be perfectly positioned to turn on the switch uh, to provide care using these other molecules as well. So that's how we ended up on, on ketamine um, as, as the starting point. But it really is a starting point for us. We, you know, some people refer to us as ketamine clinics. and I really try and disabuse that notion because we're really intended to be a psychedelic clinic and, and everything we're doing is designed to enhance the psychedelic experience in terms of set, setting, supporting tools, meditations, readings, resources, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really designed to be a psychedelic experience. Um, you know, it just so happens that the the drug that we're using as a starting point hasn't historically been known as a psychedelic, but we're doing our best to change that. That's really interesting. I, I wasn't aware in the literature of, of the the notions regarding neuroplasticity and and the high degree of tolerance among adult populations. That's that's really interesting. And I, I think it's great that uh, you're doing the work to get rid of that rave drug association with ketamine, especially as your starting point. What I'm curious about is, you know, you mentioned that you expect MDMA, psilocybin, the more classical psychedelics to come into the mix soon from a clinical therapeutic standpoint. Just curious, when you look at the offering that Field Trip will have to patients, it starts with ketamine. Where do you think you're going to take the next steps to? Do you anticipate that field trip will be likely, in all likelihood, stepping into psilocybin next, for example? Or do you think it would be into other things like modified ibogaine or MDMA? Just curious about where you as an operator see field trips next steps being. It really depends. You know, our the, the lens we're bringing to the operation of our clinics is really to provide legitimacy. Um, and, and acceptance from a medical professional consideration. That's what made us successful at Canadian Cannabis Clinics. There are a lot of things that made us successful at Canadian Cannabis Clinics, and certainly I'm not discounting fortunate timing and, and good luck as part of our success, but you know, I ascribe a lot of our success to doing cannabis medicine extremely prudently, showing results, um, showing that we take it seriously as medicine and our clinics weren't the equivalent of a Venice Beach doctor who charges 50 bucks for your elbow pain uh, to give you a, you know, a, a recommendation. So our doctors were thorough. We turned away a lot of patients who didn't qualify based on the indications or uh, requirements required by the CPSO or the College of Family Physicians. 
Uh, we wrote very thorough consult notes to the referring doctors. We typically required a, a referral in the first place. And by virtue of doing it so prudently and so thoughtfully, um, we were able to engender the trust of the broader medical community uh, who opened their mind to cannabis, you know, saw one patient using it, improving the quality of their life, the, the, that patient's life, and they would refer a second patient and a third patient. And, and then, you know, very often we'd have doctors reaching out saying like, I've never seen results as I have seen for these patients as, as cannabis has given them. I'm more, I'm interested in potentially working with you. Uh, and that happened over the course of two to three years. You know, when we first launched uh, Canvas RX, we did so at a medical conference and uh, doctors would be walking along, they'd see our booth and they'd give us a wide berth. You know, they'd actually walk around our booth to avoid talking to us. It was quite hilarious. Um, yeah. And then, you know, next year, but, but we had like a couple doctors stop because very often, um, you know, we got feedback from doctors saying like, Hey, I have patients who want cannabis. I'm not going to prescribe, but geez, if you have a doctor, I can refer these patients to who may be willing to prescribe, you know, it'd be really helpful for me. And you hear that a few times and you start to realize, okay, you know, our initial business model of building an online marketplace isn't the real problem. The real problem is that both doctors and patients need doctors who are willing to prescribe. And so that's why we pivoted and eventually evolved into Canadian cannabis clinics. But, you know, at that first conference, we had a few doctors stop, one of them being Dr. Barry Waysglass. Uh, who became our medical director and, and really was the foundation of, of our clinical rollout for Canadian cannabis clinics. Um, you know, in the next year, a few more doctors stop. And then, you know, by the third year, we were probably the most popular booth uh, at the conference. And so bringing that kind of lens to psychedelics as well, which is we want to do it thoughtfully. We want to do it prudently. Uh, we want to, you know, do the rollout in, in a very, um, in a way that's going to engender trust. Um, with doctors and, um, and, uh, and, and so that's our focus and, and doing it uh, very slowly. And I've totally lost the initial question that started me down this path. So if you want to remind me of that, that might be helpful at this point. Oh, it was just kind of where you see the next step being and into, you know, either IBA and MDMA. That kind of thing. I think you provided some great background already, so no worries there, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, but to, to answer that question specifically, so we'll go where, um, both the evidence is and the law permits. So we're not going to uh, push boundaries in terms of, you know, Ibogaine having some uh, gray status in Canada as well as to, you know, prescribable. I know it doesn't have a DIN number, but to start offering that is probably a good way to turn off the broader medical community because it doesn't, it isn't defined. It doesn't fit within the scope of, you know, what most doctors can probably wrap their head around because of its, you know, a great nature in terms of legality. So uh, we'll only work with things that are clearly legal um, and where evidence supports their use. Uh, and, and same rationale, uh, which is that's how you're going to build broader acceptance. That's going to get medical support, medical community support for it. And that's how it's going to become more mainstream and more available to the broader public who want to explore using psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. Was there throughout your exploration, perhaps this would have been during the, the field trip ventures phase, so to speak, but was there any consideration given to the notion of your first few clinics being international? And I ask this because prior to field trip health really being announced, I've had a number of conversations with cannabis industry folks and others 
who have a demonstrated interest in the psychedelics industry. And from the, the, the clinic side, so to speak, there was often two archetypes that were pitched. It was something similar to what you're doing with field trips. So starting with what is legal, what there is a medical basis for, and building a brand within a geography, prioritizing that geography, in this case, let's call it Toronto, and sort of the acceptance within both the medical community and the community of patients within that geography and sort of building your brand there. The alternative was to pick geographies where there are things are perhaps more accepted, something say like the Netherlands with truffles or, you know, like Jamaica um, and psilocybin and using that as a call it testing ground or experimental clinic where you set yourself up there, learn from that process, call that your MVP such that when the tides start to turn from a regulatory perspective in geographies like North America, you have the know-how, you have the MVP, you have the learnings, and you're ready to set up, like you're set up for success in that more valuable geography. So my question fundamentally is, is that something you considered at all? Um, and if so, why or why not? Um, just because I'm trying to understand, also to contrast for our listeners from our previous episode, where the other entrepreneur took the complete other perspective, which was, hey, there's demand for this. There's medical research and academic research supporting the benefits. We're going to try to create a safe space to access this in the interim in geographies where it may not be explicitly illegal. Yeah, the answer is yes. We we definitely considered that, and uh, you know, it's not outside of our the future evolution of our business certainly. But you know, our perspective was building trust and credibility is, is the way to do this. Um, and so, building trust and credibility is achieved by doing it thoughtfully and prudently, in much the same way we did it with Canadian cannabis clinics, and and doing it in a jurisdiction where the controls are you know and regulations are are tight. Um, because if you can do it successfully here uh, and thoughtfully and help patients here, then you can build a brand and reputation. Whereas, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, businesses that start in Jamaica um, from a clinical perspective immediately get um, some degree of stigma attached to them. Now, like I said, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's what happens. And, and you know, they get seen as... Um, regardless of how prudent they may be, they get seen as um, trying to shortcut the rules, shortcut the evidence, shortcut the process. Uh, and, and that just starts it off on the wrong foot uh, for what we want to build as a brand. So uh, that doesn't mean that certainly as we establish our bona fides, as soon as, as we establish you know, our cre credibility or trust rapport, those referral relationships, um, great patient outcomes, we won't explore extending our model uh, into jurisdictions uh, where we'll have more flexibility to, to, to you know, pick and choose which uh, which therapeutics uh, we're offering, but um, as a starting point, we wanted to focus on professionalism and, and prudence and, and um, uh, conservative medicine. You know, frankly, uh, we're what we're doing is not conservative medicine in the eyes of probably many medical professionals, uh, but it's certainly on the conservative end of the spectrum of what people are doing uh, in in psychedelics. So we think it's it's the right place to start. When you look at the geographies that you're operating in and then you're considering future expansions of the field trip model, 
I think it's important to for our, our listeners to understand that you know this is a very physical space that you're building out over varying geographies and for this to work for the delivery of these therapeutics and for these medicines to work most of our listeners are aware of you know set and setting that there's a lot of requirements beyond just a basic build out of what you might envision a clinic to be regardless of the geography you're in so Ronan I'm really curious kind of dialing it down to the more local level of a clinic what do you need to build to build a field trip clinic are there special differences in the spaces perhaps compared against canvas um, that you need to make psychedelic therapy and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy effective in that setting so it is very different than than building a cannabis clinic certainly um, the the place there, there were two primary driving considerations uh, as we built out our first clinic and, and subsequent clinics which is uh, the first one from a business rationale was it has to be a space that is designed uh, to support scale. The opportunity here and the need um, for the industry, because uh, one of the big challenges is just like the sheer cost and the man hours uh, associated with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh, is in order to get those costs down, you have to find a way to make it scalable, uh, which means you need to be able to support many patients uh, potentially simultaneously um, in a way that delivers great experience and great outcomes but is scalable Um, and so you know as we look at space and design them the first question is can we design a patient uh, journey through the clinic um, that is scalable that we can you know help many patients through again there is going to be a, a very significant cap on how many patients we can help in an individual clinic on an individual day. It's not like a Canadian cannabis clinics, you know, it's a much longer patient journey. Um, but can we design a, a, a space that facilitates you know, the patient experience in, in a way that um, can can make it scalable? And then the second piece is, is to what you talked about, which is set setting. It's can we design it in a way that is beautiful, welcoming, safe, approachable, um, comfortable, all of these things that are essential to the therapeutic outcome uh, associated with set and setting. And, and so from both perspectives, we, we've we designed our clinics, our processes from the ground up. You know, we were taking, uh, you know, our first location in Toronto, we took it right down to the walls. New York, we're taking it right down to the walls. Um, and we're building the space uh, tailored to uh, exactly those needs of comfort, approachability, as well as efficiency and, and scalability. Um, exactly how that gets implemented, to be quite honest, is outside of my sort of uh, pay grade because, you know, pro- process flows, operational flows, all that kind of stuff, that's that's not my strength, as well as, you know, interior design and, and decoration and, and experience is also not within uh, my expertise, so the specific nuances, decisions that were made in, in terms of designing our first two clinics, uh, I can't really speak to with any degree of knowledge, but those are the two driving theses um, that uh, get implemented in, into the, the structuring of the clinics. So I, I think to your point, the next thing you could probably, you're probably best positioned to speak to that I think this is a good segue for is... I mean, clearly the business model is more or less unique and unprecedented. It's in an emerging industry that is likely going to continue to evolve for this foreseeable future. 
it does, unfortunately, perhaps not on this call, but in broader society, have some negative connotations associated with it that it needs to overcome. So I think what I'm wondering is, as you're thinking about the team that you're assembling and sort of the, the skills and the gaps they need to fill that you may not necessarily have, like, can you talk a bit about your team? Like, who are the key members? How have you assembled it? And perhaps where are you still seeing gaps in skill sets um, that we'll need to address in the long run uh, as this industry continues to mature? That's a, that's a you know pretty broad question, and I don't know if there's a, a way to answer it succinctly or or completely. Um, but you know, in terms of the operations and experience. Uh, we've brought together people from a very broad array of backgrounds. So, uh, you know, our advisory team is is pretty large. Uh, I'm not going to touch on everyone, but Dr. Sid Kennedy, who's one of the foremost uh, recognized psychiatrists on depression and researchers on depression in Canada and possibly globally, uh, is is part of our advisory team. Dr. Mike Ehlers, um, who is one of the sort of most successful um, uh, phar pharmaceutical executives and, and neuroscience and neurobiology and neurochemistry as part of our advisory team. Um, Ryan, uh, Dr. Ryan Uramis, who's our chief clinical officer, who really kind of designed the, the patient flow for Canadian cannabis clinics and has brought the lens to, uh, to field trip as well, is, has been instrumental to uh, designing um, the protocol with SID uh, along with um, uh, Amber Amendola, who uh, was our director of experience, and, and now she's still an advisor. Uh, who she's done a lot of work um, working with patients on an underground basis uh, with psychedelics, with the classic psychedelics as well. Um, you know, uh, we brought in Marshall, uh, who was uh, uh, has a, a, a degree, uh, I guess, a master's in, in biochemistry from Harvard, and has a specific area of expertise and knowledge in, in, in um, uh, psychoactive molecules, THC, but a particular interest in, in psychedelics. Uh, Melissa, who also came from the California industry, is essential or has a great degree of experience building labs um, for the work we're doing on psilocybin producing mushrooms in Jamaica. Uh, you know, our therapist, Joseph DeLeo, who's our chief clinic, uh, chief psychologist, uh, brings a a great degree of academia and, and clinical practice and, and sort of more general therapy. So, you know, we're really bringing together uh, experience and knowledge from a diverse set of, you know, overlapping and related, but not particularly specific to psychedelics because we think the knowledge of psychiatrists who have a great degree, degree of um experience working with depression, uh, you know, cannabis industry veterans, doctors, you know, uh, more conventional like family doctors, uh, therapists who do underground work, uh, chemists and, and biologists who, who know a lot about the psychoactive molecules and, and the biological impact of them. Blending all of these knowledge bases uh, has been essential to, to designing all of our, our protocols, the design of the lab, our brand, all of this kind of stuff. And then we think it's Really, the, those um, competing but complementary voices uh, have led to a, a really wonderful outcome um, where we've managed to bring out the best of all aspects and, and leave behind the things that don't necessarily serve us or 
or our patients or our business. In terms of the gaps going forward, I think one of the challenges is, um, you know, finding finding therapists because because this is such a, a novel area because you know we're going to be learning on the fly because no one's really provided psychedelic assisted psychotherapy at scale before. Uh, you know, we're going to be constantly tweaking, uh, evolving, changing our offerings, and and you know, um, ensuring that our therapists are qualified and can sort of go with the flow uh, in terms of how this business, how our therapeutic offerings evolve and mature um, is probably going to be the biggest challenge, but I I don't think there's a surprise there. I think, you know, always everybody's identified finding qualified therapists who can do this work and be truly empathetic and support patients is going to be the big knowledge gap or the big, you know, need in the industry. And, And that's certainly true for us as well. But that being said, you know, so far, uh, our clinical team is is fantastic. Um, they know what they're doing. They great, bring a great degree of experience. They have a passion for the work they're doing, um, and uh, and so I think you know building their experience with hands-on work the way we're doing it is is going to help filter down into to new recruits and new therapists coming on board. We'll certainly also look to continue recruiting people who have more direct experience and wisdom working directly with psychedelics or ketamine um, to continue to build that, you know, institutional knowledge base, even if it's not clearly defined or articulated. Um, you know, I think the the interactions and the overlapping uh, is going to help cultivate this into a uh, well-defined in the future, uh, very thoughtful and very repeatable program uh, for patients such that they have great experiences, they have great clinical outcomes, uh, and they have a great team supporting them where they have great relationships and and believe not only uh, in the quality of the relationship with their therapist, but with the field trip brand because that they know it stands for for something that we're committed to, even though it's it's still constantly evolving and and so new. Um, So, you know, I think I think that's the biggest gap for us right now, but that could change day to day, hour to hour, depending on what else is going on in the world. You know, certainly uh, the, the COVID pandemic has has required us to pivot and alter um, towards offering virtual services, uh, which is not something that was on our short term roadmap uh, as we look to build out the in-clinic spaces. And so our, our, our clinical team has been trying to adapt and evolve and, and help that. Uh, move along, even though, you know, literally we just saw our first patient in our Toronto clinic uh, the week before we closed because of the COVID pandemic. So there's a steep learning curve. And then, you know, within 10 days, there is a hard left turn uh, in terms of trying to offer new therapies and and new programs to accommodate the fact that we couldn't see people in person. Uh, And they've totally rolled with the punches. So have a great deal of respect for them. Um, and, you know, there's probably a lot more of that coming for better or for worse. And yeah, you know, rolling with the punches, you've certainly done a good job of it. I mean, we've had a lot thrown at us from a, a business perspective lately, just in my experience uh, at the, in the venture funds that I work with. Uh, we see a lot of portfolio companies doing those rapid pivots, rapidly digitizing and virtualizing their services to try and deal with these the shortcomings associated with COVID-19. Going back to your point about having a diverse team and needing to grow it from a therapeutic standpoint, all the while rolling with the punches, you know, there's definitely a need for financing in this space. And there's there's definitely a need for strategic financing that can really support a rollout in 
a time as uncertain as this. So, you know, I just wanted to jump into kind of our next point of discussion here, which was related to financing and, and how Field Trip has been financed to date. So for our listeners, I think it would be useful to have a bit of a background on how Field Trip has been funded. And through the process of actually pulling that raise together, what were some of the biggest roadblocks you came to and came to overcome when pitching investors on a psychedelic venture? Yeah, so we've raised um, how much is in total in, in Canadian dollars, probably around $12 million uh, in total. Um, <clears throat> that came, you know, the initial seed money came from the founders. Uh, we did a small raise uh, for about $1.3 million from certain select advisors. And then we just completed a, an $8.5 million Series A uh, in January. Um, I think the biggest challenge we encountered uh, in our fundraise is that when you know we initially started momentum towards building field trip, uh, the cannabis markets were still good, and certainly our investor uh, base and relationship were a lot of people who were quite successful in the cannabis industry. Uh, and as that market turned south, we had to you know expand our uh, natural investor base to reach out to a broader audience. And, and fortunately, there's an extremely broad audience of people who are extremely interested in, in, in psychedelics. You know, I think the challenges that um, uh, we faced were, um, one is just like getting over like the economic challenges of cannabis investors. Two was our model is, is based on a, a physical rollout first, um, which a lot of more conventional venture capitalists have trouble wrapping their head around uh, in terms of scalability. But really, this is just the, uh, the kind of Trojan horse, the vanguard uh, for a much broader, uh, much more robust business model. Um, uh, and so, you know, it took, it took some convincing uh, around that uh, to sort of see the broader picture. Um, but there weren't too many challenges overall in, in getting our financing done. You know, we, we got investors from a, a very robust background from academics to doctors to VCs, um, as well as our, as our own money, certainly putting in as much as we did, which is like our, our founder base, I think, put in three and a half to $4 million of the eight and a half million dollars, which is really, I think, telling investors we believe strongly in, in this venture uh, and, and this opportunity, uh, and you should as well, um, really uh, helped a lot. Um, and then, you know, it's just sort of navigating specific questions uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. But broadly, there wasn't a, a challenge um, uh, overall. I think people uh, were drawn to the fact that we had a thoughtful um, a business model with inherent redundancies built in to contemplate, um, you know, the the very unknown regulatory future. You know, we're we're convinced that you're going to see legal access to psychedelics, but we don't know how, where, or when. Um, and so, we've built in kind of natural pivots into our business model, anticipating that, um, which I think gave a lot of people a lot of comfort, um, such that they knew this wasn't you know, one of those things that could just disappear overnight in, in the event of some big regulatory shift, which frankly, I don't see forthcoming. I think the momentum uh, towards psychedelics, especially uh, in light of the COVID uh, pandemic, which is going to, after creating like the most complex financial uh, challenges, I think the world has ever seen uh, on such a short-term basis, it's actually going to give rise to the greatest mental health challenge and mental health care challenge uh, the world has ever seen. And so I think the, the needed timing uh, of that is, is, um, is only going to 
make what we do that much more important. And, and so I think you're going to see potentially an expediting of legal access to, to psychedelics after this all falls through. And in fact, there are calls, not, not just from me, but from a number of medical professionals demanding that there at least be given temporary access uh, to psychedelic therapies uh, to help patients deal with the fallout of, of the pandemic. So all that to say, um, you know, it was, uh, it was probably a little bit longer uh, of a financing effort than we thought it would be, um, but there were a number of reasons that explain that rationally. Uh, and beyond that, you know, the investors who did by and large pass just wanted to see a little bit more traction uh, in terms of our clinical rollout before they participated. But, you know, by and large, the feedback was extremely positive. I think, so I think that was more or less in line with, with what we were expecting. I guess the, the, the thing I'm a little bit more curious about to, to dig into a little bit is the, you touched on this a bit, but the, the demographics or the, the backgrounds of the investors, is there anything close to, I, I hesitate to say institutional because I'm almost certain there's no institutional money, but is there what you would call traditional VC or PE at all on your cap table? Or is this more, you know, like the, the various angels, doctors, sort of ex-cannabis industry or current cannabis industry executives and so forth? And the reason I'm I'm sort of touching on this is because I'm curious about the the regulatory challenges that some larger investors would need to face um, as part of their due diligence process, should they be interested in investing in this. So the question to you is, is this purely angel money, for lack of a better term, or is there institutional money behind Field Trip in any way? And it, is it even possible at this stage in the industry to attract investors of that caliber for lack of a better term. Uh, on our cap table, there are some VCs, uh, certainly, uh, admittedly they are smaller VCs, but, uh, certainly some VCs did participate and, and a number were interested. Um, you know, I, I've never been quite clear on, on exactly what the definition of institutional money is, but outside of our cap table, um, you know, certainly uh, Compass Pathways, which has received a, a large investment from Teal Capital and or Founders Fund, um, you know, uh, is, is significant. Um, you know, we know, uh, we know other uh, cannabis-related uh, funds uh, of substantial size uh, participated in ours, uh, as, well as, um, as well as Compass Pathways and, and Atai. So I don't think... Um, you know, there's there's not the same restrictions or the same challenges that cannabis had because everything that's happening in psychedelics is all purely legal or or being done within the context of uh, FDA Health Canada approval. Um, and so the 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 um, the federal versus state legal complexities um, don't exist, uh, which means it's not outside of the scope of most funds. Uh, you know, I think I think the bigger challenge. Um, where you know institutional money may be more on the sidelines for companies like Compass Pathways is is because the the intellectual property regime around uh, psilocybin or the classic psychedelics is fairly nuanced, complex, and, and not fully defined. Um, and so, for conventional biotech investors, for instance, that presents 
you know, a bit of a learning curve in terms of how do you build the business model if you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, robust intellectual property protection around the molecule that you're advancing. Um, but, you know, I think I think that's more, you know, if, if there's not a whole lot of institutional money uh, in it, I think it's more a reflection of just the very, very nascent stage of the industry and, and not symptomatic of, of broader concerns. I like I appreciate you getting into that that nuance and sharing those details with us. Um, I'm I'm inclined to agree. We talked about the sort of Peter Thiel's investment into Compass um, as early as our trailer, so w we acknowledge that it's it's happening. I was just curious if it's something that your team had personally um, grappled with and experienced. So that's that's super helpful context for our listeners. I think you touched on a few points that make for a good segue into what is admittedly a meaty topic, but I think you're uniquely well positioned to opine on. And that's the similarities, differences, and call them false similarities between the cannabis industry and the psychedelics industry. Um, the, the prelude I want to add here is like, of course, I'm cognizant that both your relationships as well as the, the skills you learned navigating emerging industries that, pertain to stigmatized substances um, and their potential medical use. Like obviously all of that is beneficial and helps with the work you would be doing at field trip. But more broadly, I'm curious how you react to the notion that, you know, Colin and I, for example, have had a lot of conversations with cannabis industry folks who see psychedelics as like the next logical extension of their mandate and their skill set and even like their due diligence process. And so I'm wondering for someone who's started businesses in the nascent stage of both industries and someone who has sort of rode the ups and downs of cannabis and is now grappling with the emerging psychedelics industry, like how would you distill the parallels and the key points of contrast that perhaps people in the media or people in the industry are not paying enough attention to for our listeners? Where are they the same? Where are they different? And why is fundamentally what I would love to get at. Sure. So the similarities um, high level are, uh, these are both stigmatized medicines that more for political than scientific reasons have been uh, off limits um, to the medical and scientific community as well as patients. Um, that's that's one clear clear similarity. Um, when it comes to psilocybin uh, in particular, and I guess ayahuasca, and, and I guess you can sort of throw DMT in there as well. Uh, these are all uh, naturally occurring substances, um, so you know, kind of gets lumped into plant-based medicine even LSD and kind of MDMA get lumped in, even though those are purely synthetic molecules. Um, and, and so there's the sort of natural product bent um, that these are more natural than, than pharmaceuticals. Um, and certainly, you know, for most of the psychedelics, the safety profile associated with them is quite high. You know, Professor David Nutt uh, was the I forget his exact title, but essentially the UK's drug czar uh, wrote that seminal piece that I think has been instrumental to the reevaluation of psychedelics, where you know he demonstrated that on a personal harm basis and a social harm basis, um, 
psilocybin and LSD are amongst the lowest harm drugs out there, mm -hmm. uh, even lower than cannabis, which is generally perceived to be quite safe uh, and, and lower than many pharmaceutical drugs. And, and so, you know, you have the safety profile, you've got this view that they're part of plant-based medicine, uh, and they're certainly been stigmatized. Those are the, the areas of overlap. You know, you can, by extension, draw further parallels, which I think from a financial perspective, people see this as the next big wave, um, you know, that you're probably going to have the same degree of mania uh, in the markets as companies go public. And uh, certainly MindMed, uh, which is, I think, the first real credible company to go public in the psychedelic space, even though their notion of their nexus to being psychedelic is a bit of a stretch. Um, uh, you know, they've had a, a pretty good couple of weeks in a time when the market has been pretty, pretty bad. Um, mm -hmm. And so you, maybe you get the first flavors of, of that kind of sensibility of, of having really frothy markets. But I think that's, that's really where the parallels end. You know, um, the biggest distinction between cannabis and psychedelics, at least to date, is that psychedelics seem to be going down a conventional approval path, uh, whereas cannabis came about by uh, either constitutional challenge in Canada or ballot initiative um, in the U.S. That's changing a little bit now. Most state, more states are proactively through a legislative process uh, legalizing medical or adult use cannabis, but not until you know the last year or two is that really uh, a viable option for for legal access um but you know uh, mdma you know that likely the first access is going to come through fda approval and you know uh, the fda has given breakthrough status to compass pathways maps and, and usona um for their studies which means that not only are they open-minded to uh, psychedelics and uh, proving these drugs they're actually you know, positioning them as much as I guess the FDA can in an unbiased way, uh, position them for success. So that's that's a, a significant delineation uh, to cannabis. Now that also could change, which is you know I know that there are representative litigants lining up in Canada to fight the constitutional challenge around access to psilocybin or plant-based psychedelics on the same basis of as medical cannabis was uh, sought back in 2001. And, and so it's a very real possibility that you may see legal access come through the courts, at least in Canada, um, before you get uh, any kind of regulatory approval. And similarly, you know, again, uh, it seems like they've got uh, enough signatures now um, but the uh, PSI 2020 initiative, the Psilocybin Services uh, Act um, in Oregon, looks like it may get on the 2020 ballot. Uh, and based on the polling numbers that I've heard from them, you know, it's very likely to succeed if it does get on the ballot. So you could see um, it move more in the direction of of cannabis uh, if either of the constitutional challenges or the ballot initiatives succeed. But to date. Um, the, the most likely path to legal psychedelics is, is conventional drug development approval. So big, big difference there. I think the second difference is um, um, cannabis is a product, whereas most people view psychedelics as a service. Uh, you know, using the psilocybin 2020 or the psilocybin services act in Oregon uh, as a good example, you know, what they're proposing is, is not to create a, legal access to psilocybin mushrooms that you can go to a store and take home and, and you know, go on a psychedelic journey by yourself. Rather, 
what they're creating is what I call a wellness system, um, which is you don't have to be sick to participate. So it's not purely a medical program, uh, but you do have to go to a licensed administrator. You have to go to a licensed site to go through the experience. So it is a very controlled experience. It's just not purely medical um, in that you have to be sick. Whereas cannabis, you know, it's just buy a product, take it home and self-medicate. And I suspect um, certainly if, if legal access to psychedelics comes through FDA approval, you're going to be have, have to be going to a doctor's office um, of some sort. Uh, and even if it comes through ballot initiative or constitutional challenges, I suspect the programs you're going to see uh, is going to restrict access to specific locations, you know, kind of the opposite of what seems to be happening in Ontario, at least vis-a-vis -vis vaping lounge where they can't get their act together uh, to permit it. I think, you know, having uh, psychedelic experience clinics or, or whatever it gets called uh, is going to be a central component of whatever regime gets approved from, from psychedelics. Um, so I think those are, are two big, the two big areas of differentiation from cannabis. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that, that, that comes to mind, but, but not off the top of my head right now. And when it comes to investors or, or people looking to get involved with the psychedelics industry and sector, as we move forward and we evolve from, from a regulatory standpoint, how would you, as someone who's been involved at the earliest stages of both cannabis and psychedelics, position yourself to learn more and stay up to date and potentially even get involved at a, a business or financial level in the industry? Yeah, there's, there's um, a lot of uh, great content that is starting to emerge in the space um, from, on the more lifestyle side of things. So if you want to see what's happening on a kind of a grassroots community or, you know, I, I'd say longevity um, uh, perspective. There, there's Meat Delic um, and Reality Sandwich. Uh, there's there's Double Blind, which is producing great content, which is sort of more cultural consideration. But um, and uh, I guess Third Wave is producing great content. Uh, we're about to launch a podcast actually as well, um, just to give some color and context to what's happening, uh, the research the experiences, what it means, how it affects people, all that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of more thoughtful business related um, uh, kind of information, um, uh, there's a, again, a number of things happening. The, the trip report is, is a great daily email um, service with updates in the industry and, and the political landscape. Uh, Psychedelics Today is, is a great publication for some, understanding the more scientific side of things. Uh, groups like Prohibition Partners uh, has, has recently started a, a report on, on psychedelics and, and many of the, the cannabis uh, investor media uh, is branching out into psychedelics as well. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but um, you know, it, uh, it's one of those things that as soon as like you can loop into it either on Twitter uh, or Facebook or directly with one of the, the websites, uh, you can usually connect the dots pretty quickly. I know I personally have like Google searches set up around psilocybin and MDMA. And, you know, interestingly, most of the information is not about people getting arrested for trafficking or, or possessing, but really either the business or scientific or academic pursuits around these molecules as well. So these are certainly ways to, to start to get up to speed. Um, there are a number of conferences 
popping up. A lot of them were supposed to be in person. Um, I'm supposed to speak at a whole bunch of them to the point where I can't even remember all of them. Uh, they've all moved virtual. Um, you know, there's one coming up on April 14th called the, uh, and I don't know when this podcast will get published, so I apologize if this is out of date by the time it gets done, but uh, April 14th, there's the Virtual Psychedelic Summit. Um, uh, there's the, uh, the Psychedelic Opportunity Summit. There's a whole bunch of them, you know, simple Google search. Uh, we'll, we'll turn them up. And I think that's the, the best place to get started, certainly. Um, and I don't say this just because he's been a great ally to us, uh, which he has been, but, um, you know, anyone who wants to get a good understanding of what's happening uh, and a good read at the same time, I'd, I'd certainly recommend they read uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. If you want to get a sense of the history, uh, the Harvard Psychedelic Club is, is a great book as well. Um, uh, so there's there's a great amount of content that's out there already, and it, it's just going to grow exponentially. And I think the the challenge, uh, much like, you know, with CBD is going to be starting to, uh, as as less um, less thoughtful, more opportunistic part, people start to hop into the space is you probably get a lot of misinformation uh, or dubious information. Uh, and so eventually it's going to be harder to parse the legitimate news or the legitimate content from the illegitimate stuff. But Right now, it seems like all of the, the players are, are quite thoughtful, uh, quite diligent uh, in their reporting. And, and so most content uh, that's being produced these days is actually pretty high quality. It, is that, I, I just want to pull on the thread of that last point a little bit, because it's something we discussed uh, extensively in our previous episode. But do you do you ever worry that perhaps what what seems like a good thing at face value which is this this wealth of information that's driving like a surge in both knowledge of but demand for these substances um may potentially result in like history repeating itself and what i mean by that is again in like the 60s and 70s we had a huge wave of promising research we had social movements that made it seem like these substances were going to be sort of accepted more broadly. And then for lack of a better term, we got the cart ahead of the horse. And I, I concede that there was a lot in terms of like US government context that complicated um, that time period. But I'm wondering if as someone so deeply entrenched in the industry and so sort of well-connected, but also directly contributing to a lot of the excitement in the space, do you ever worry that more private business and private actors approaching psychedelics might almost tarnish the the clean and sort of academic reputation of institutions like Johns Hopkins or Imperial College or MAPS who've been at this for, you know, over a decade at this point. And like, like I just wonder if we're not learning from the mistakes of the past. And specifically, I wonder what your take is on that. And if you think not so much you, but the industry as a whole is treating things differently, or if we're, or if there's a risk that we sort of scare regulators and the, the public into a state of backlash, you know, like one, bad story in the media from a psychedelic retreat company 
or, you know, someone who read too much of the research and listened to a podcast and then went to self-medicate and something less than ideal happened. Like, I wonder if you fear that that is a meaningful risk as this becomes more top of mind for everyone. It's it's a fair question. And I think Rick Doblin, I, I'm going to attribute it to him, even though I don't know if it was actually him who said it. He said, like, the most important thing that anybody in the psychedelics space can do right now is not fuck it up uh, and repeat <laughs> the history of the past. Um, my instinct is it's very unlikely uh for us to make the same mistakes uh, in history for one you know at least the the prominent players right now uh, are all very cognizant of not fucking it up um and so i think everybody's advocating for uh, thoughtfulness prudence uh, a smart approach um and and so i don't so you know the, the players coming forward are not Timothy Leary or you know Richard Alpert slash Ram Das who you know I have a great degree of respect for, um, but they they went cowboy right you know they kind of didn't like the rules and they did it on their own, um, and it, you know it, you can't escape the 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 social context as as well, uh, which is you know. Uh, I think uh, it, another book that people should read, just speaking of content, even though it's not specifically about psychedelics, is, is called Stealing Fire um, by uh, uh, Blank on, on the author's name right now. Uh, but, um, you know, it talks about how throughout history there's been keepers of of information and, and access to the divine, right? And And that in the modern day and age, we've hit a point, especially... Um, facilitated by the internet, uh, where almost anything and everything is accessible to whoever wants to find it, including psychedelics. And they talk about how, you know, psychedelics and, and, and drinking and drugs and, and sex and porn and all of these things are just like drivers for different experiences and getting to know, you know, our humanity a lot better than, um, you know, what we've been told is a, a good, normal, healthy lifestyle. Uh, and I think that box has been opened, um, particularly around psychedelics. And, and, you know, interestingly about psychedelics is uh, most people, even though, you know, psilocybin and LSD are inherently non-addictive, they are self-perpetuating, which means that like people who have a good experience on uh, psychedelics are very inclined to attach meaning to it and then become a, an evangelist for psychedelics. So it's got like this natural momentum behind it that, can't as easily be put back in a box um, because the internet makes everything so accessible to whomever wants it. Uh, and I think also on the social context, you know, um, cannabis has, there's been a number of things that have really challenged the ability of the status quo to maintain moral authority, uh, particularly around psychedelics and then find expanding drugs from the opioid crisis and, and, and the misleading of uh, you know, both the medical community and patients around the safety of, of opioids um, to the emergence of, you know, sort of the natural product space uh, to the the big oops around cannabis. You know, it, it, it's it, as we're speaking, you know, cannabis industries in, in many states are being deemed essential uh, through the can, uh, COVID pandemic. You know, whereas 20 years ago, they were illegal and, and you could go to jail potentially for a lifetime you know, being busted for, for selling a joint three times. 
Um, you know, and, and so a lot of the moral authority, particularly in the sphere of what we can and can't put into our body has been lost, um, rightfully or wrongfully, it's, it's been lost. And so I think you're going to have a lot, a harder challenge of, of, you know, um, a governmental authority saying we have the moral authority and the conviction and the knowledge to say this is bad when, you know, the evidence is coming out from objective sources like NYU, like Johns Hopkins, like Imperial College saying, no, no, this is pretty safe and, you know, pretty effective. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a big risk. I, I mean, I certainly hope people are prudent. I certainly hope that, you know, you don't have bad actors who lead to a bad experience, but, I think the people and the momentum behind it are, are, is sufficiently informed um, to say these are powerful drugs and we recognize that there's risks around them. You know, no one is advocating that these are entirely harmless and perfectly safe and that bad things can, may, and probably will happen, you know, but that's, that doesn't mean the whole thing needs to be put back in a box. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so my instinct is no, I don't, I don't think this gets shut down. I don't think, you know, you, you have government authorities with the moral authority um, or the impetus or inclination to make this the fight uh, that they're willing to, to they're the hill they're willing to die on. Certainly in Canada, where the courts have shown uh, a very remarkable uh, willingness to say, we don't really care what the politics dictate, uh, what is right and wrong and what is constitutional is, is within our sphere of decision-making. And, and they've already told us what they thought about cannabis. And then when you look at the facts and circumstances about of that case back in 2001, and you compare that to the facts and circumstances around psilocybin, uh, it's very hard to come to a conclusion that the court would decide, um, in a manner contrary to the cannabis decision. So, so no, I, I, I just don't think it's likely that this gets put back in a box. Could it be set back? Yeah, maybe. But even then, I, I think it's unlikely, especially, and I know I'm going on, but um, more thoughts come to mind, especially just given the urgent need um, for new ways to approach mental health challenges, you know, as it is, even on this day, you know, it's estimated that one in four people globally will deal with a mental health challenge at some point in their lives. Uh, that is roughly two billion people, you know, and, and the existing toolkit we have is, is not very effective uh, in treating these mental health challenges. And, and now as a result of the COVID pandemic, you can probably increase that number to three and four people, or maybe four and four people will have a mental health challenge at some point in their lives. And, and without having a, a toolbox to fight that, and then when you look at, you know, the studies on, on MDMA that are showing that people with chronic severe PTSD in the phase two MAPS trial, 70% of them have total resolution of all symptoms associated with PTSD. You know, how, how could you possibly come to a conclusion that someone's going to say like, no, we want 80% of the population to suffer through potentially post-corona stress disorder uh, and a molecule out there that is shown to be quite safe and extremely effective. Um, we're not going to give access to it just, you know, I just can't like get my head there, uh, but maybe I'm an inherent optimist. Uh, maybe I'm naive in that respect, but that's just uh, the way I see it. Yeah, well, you know, I don't think I'd see you as, as naive. You know, I, I think what you alluded to, the the informational velocity and in access is almost impossible to overcome at this point. And, and given the, quite frankly, broken way that we 
treat and, and address mental health issues globally being so ever-present and, and getting worse and worse. I, I, I don't think any amount of, of government intervention or, or willingness to die on this hill, as you mentioned, could possibly slow down the information access and, and the real needs that would be met by psychedelics at this point. So with that in mind, you know, I thought this would be a good time to kind of tie off our discussion today, bring it back to a more broad level. And we just wanted to ask you personally, what's the one thing that you're most excited about for field trip and the industry more broadly? I know we've covered a lot of topics today, um, but if we could bring it down to one thing for both your localized field trip experience and then psychedelics overall, uh, what are you most excited about and what are you most looking forward to? Yeah, uh, you know, my, my ambitions for field trip are, you know, very lofty, which is I, I generally want to change the world. I, I think I think psychedelics, even though it, the, the, the starting point is purely in a clinical medical regime treating, uh, you know, diagnosed mental health conditions, I, I really think psychedelics have the potential and power to unleash the best in humanity, you know, empathy, creativity, awareness, uh, love, connection to the planet, you know, all the things that uh, particularly in an increasingly fragmented social society as a result of digital technology and now just being greatly exacerbated by the COVID pandemic, you know, those things are so much more urgently important uh, than ever before. Uh, and so if we can start people getting there, even if that's through breath work and getting people bought into breath work, um, you know, to achieve a kind of heightened state of consciousness and, and awareness and, and self-reflection, uh, that, that is, is, you know, going to be, that is my dream. And I think field trip is extremely well positioned, uh, to do that, to bring that conversation forward, to make it accessible and approachable and understandable, um, and, and give people the opportunity to participate in it. You know, to, it's it's unfortunate we will have to go as 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 slowly as we do, um, but that doesn't mean that uh, we won't create the impact that uh, I'm hopeful for. So, uh, you know, that that's that's what motivates me. That's what's got me excited about field trip and, and the psychedelics industry more broadly, which is I, I really see this as a a unique opportunity uh, in history to really elevate the, the state of humanity uh, in a really, really wonderful way. I, like, I, I honestly couldn't have asked for a more sort of poetic, beautiful, and, and optimistic end to this podcast. Um, I, I really just, like, on a personal level, want to thank you, Ronan. It's, it's crazy to me that after a full day of work, and two hours talking to you about topics that like quite candidly, we for the most part had the answer to before we asked the question. Like it was engrossing, it was exciting, and I would be happy to talk for another two hours, though I'm cognizant that that's not something any of our schedules will allow. So again, like just to reiterate, thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for sharing your perspective. And I know I speak for both Colin and myself when I say that we couldn't be more excited that one of the preeminent companies and the pioneers in this space is from Toronto and that we've had a chance to learn a bit more about your story and do whatever we can in sharing it with the world. And even if we convince one other person, um, like I'd be happy with that. 
And so I appreciate you for taking the time to do this, especially given our pandemic circumstances. Yeah, really appreciate it, you it, it, it work. It, it's honestly been my pleasure and, and I thank you for the opportunity. It, you know, the questions you asked were, were super thoughtful. Um, and they appreciated the dialogue and, and really I, I, I am genuinely grateful for the opportunity to to say my piece and, and get the story out and, and like you said like if we can change one mind here if we can open one person's perspective um you know it, it'll have been totally worthwhile and, and i enjoyed it the entire way through so so thanks to both of you that's great thank you ronan thank you